Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. I, uh, I'm Dave Clausen, as, as uh, you're introducing. And somehow as we began the discussion, like we circle up before the worship, and somehow there was going to be a walk-up song or something for me, like... And Snoop Dogg was mentioned, and wisely, Evan did not put on any music, because I can't dance. Um, Yeah, we're this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 3, and this is a really, really rich chapter. And we're going to look at the first part of it, and over the past few years, just to get you thinking about this, the theme of this message, the last few years, Rachel and I have gone to Colorado for vacation to Keystone. And we, we have found that we absolutely love hiking on mountain trails. And we, we have timed our trips to be right at the height of the aspens, turning a yellow that just darn near hurts your eyes to look at. And the first year we were there, we get on these trails and we discover that running shoes are not good on trails. They, in fact, they're just dangerous because you don't have the, the grip. And so we, we decided we would go after a couple of days on the trails, we would go and buy some hiking shoes. It's a game changer. I have, I have three words like REI, right? They are amazing. You go in there and it's so tempting to, to spend money. But the, the hiking shoes made a huge, huge difference. And what we discovered is REI outfitted us with the right gear for the, for the, the mountains. And it, it was a game changer. It transformed hiking for us. And as we look at John chapter 3 this morning, we're going to look at another conversation where the discussion was around being outfitted and being transformed. And Jesus was talking with Nicodemus about how can I outfit, how can I be outfitted for heaven? And that's the discussion that we're going to eavesdrop on this morning in John chapter 3. And and this is a really... uh, intimate and and intense conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And and what Jesus does is just blow up everything that Nicodemus believed spiritually. All of his assumptions, Jesus basically says, you're wrong. And so so we we get this picture of it. And and what Jesus does is he just, he says to, to Nicodemus, who is trying to outfit himself for heaven, he says, you can't get there from, from here. It's a dead end. It's a failure. You, you cannot get there. And, and so as we look at it this morning, it's not just Nicodemus, but, but it's, it's Jesus asking us this morning, how are you trying to be outfitted for heaven? Like, what, what's equipping you for heaven? How do you get there? And, and so Jesus has the same bomb that he drops on Nicodemus is on us this morning of saying, you can't get there on your own. Can't be done. And that the way to heaven is, is not through getting better, through self-improvement, through sin management. That the way to heaven is, it, it just can't be done on our part. It has to be done to us. It requires transformation. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning is, is this idea of, of how do we get outfitted for heaven? And here's the big idea, and, and this is just what I want you to take away from this morning, is you must completely trust Jesus to outfit you uh, for heaven. 
And you have to stop trying to outfit yourself. To put it another way, you must trust Jesus to make you everything you need to be to go to heaven rather than trying to make yourself what you feel like you ought to be in order to go to heaven. So the the passage, we're going to cover four points. It outlines really well. Uh, Verses 1 to 2 are just the approach that Nicodemus makes to Jesus. And then verses 3 to 8, Jesus makes a really radical claim to Nicodemus. It just stands him on his head. And then in, in 9 to 13, Jesus says, well, I can make this radical claim because I have a radical authority that I am an authority that is so different from any you've ever seen. And then verses 14 and 15, we're going to look at the response of faith. That What do we do with all this? How do we respond? So let's just dive in in, in verses 1 and 2 with the approach. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Nicodemus is, is like the very best that Israel had to offer. He's the top 1%. He's a ruler, he's part of the Council of 70 rulers over religious authority over Israel, and they had a tremendous impact upon um, the civil authority of Rome. They were called the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit of what that meant. And, and he, was, he was a leader. He was a teacher. He, he had been around a long time. And, and he comes to Jesus at night, and there's a lot of speculation. Why did Jesus come at night? And so, first of all, I want to, I just Full disclosure, if you've seen The Chosen, I love that. But that's not necessarily how I see it. Um, so I'm not going to stick with it. Like, The Chosen is not inspired, the Bible is, right? But it was such a great story. So watch it if you have not watched The Chosen on Nicodemus. Fantastic. But anyway, so he comes at night, and I, there's a lot of thoughts as to why Nicodemus came at night. You know, was he, was he trying to keep it a secret because he was ashamed, or, or was he just trying to get some alone time with Jesus. I mean, Jesus was busy during the day. He had crowds around him. Or, or maybe he, he had this attitude of, I want to have a serious conversation with Jesus. And the best time to do that, and you know, I may even be able to give him a few tips, is at night. And so I, I really don't know. And, and I don't think John cares, or he would have told us. What he cares about is that it is darkness. Because the darkness is symbolic of where Nicodemus is, right? That here's this Jewish leader who should be in the light, who should be the light for Israel, and he's in darkness because he's living out a view of God and a view of the Christian life or what would become the Christian life or how we enter the kingdom of God. He's viewing that from a viewpoint that is both unlivable and it won't happen. If you follow it, you won't get there. So he comes to Jesus and he addresses him with a really remarkable courtesy. When you think of who Nicodemus was, he, he, he just says to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, that was a term of great respect. And he says, says, Rabbi, we know you're from God, as opposed to like Satan, right? We know, and, and we, 
I'm impressed with your teaching. I see the miracles you're doing, and, and God is clearly with you. And so Nick really starts out with this really kind, gracious response to Jesus. And, and Jesus um, just will have none of it. We're going to look in verse 3 in a minute, but, but not yet. That He just has no time for these niceties because he wants to get at the heart of Nicodemus, and he wants to blow past all this. But, but I want to give you a little bit about Nick's thought process, what he was thinking, what he had grown up with, what, what is between his ears that led to this conversation. Because, and the Pharisees give us some clues. But the Pharisees were the strictest sect in all of Israel. So they, um, they had a deep, deep reverence for Scripture and, and the law of Moses. And, and they had a, a deep reverence for their traditions that they had built around it. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But, but they believed that if you observe the laws and the traditions with all your heart, with all your might, the better you did that, the more you were guaranteed to get into heaven and the, the better off you would be in heaven, like higher rank or something. And, and, it, and, and so it, the Pharisees, um, what's interesting is there were never more than 6,000 Pharisees in the nation of Israel. It was a fraternity. They called themselves the Brotherhood. And it was a fraternity, and, and to get in it, you had to pledge before three witnesses that I will do everything I can with all my might for all of my days to live out the law and the scriptures. They were deeply dedicated. And, they, 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 and I think it was out of this love for God that, and, the, and the scriptures and this deep desire to obey him that they started to layer on all of these traditions that Jesus began to say is wrong. But the heart that led them there was right. Because think of the mindset. If you believe that your eternal destiny is built upon upon your ability to keep perfectly all of the law of Moses and the scriptures, then you will do everything you can to make them black and white, right? You don't want any gray there because you might not get in. So they didn't want gray, because gray was bad, so black and white was good. And so what they started doing is, if you think about the law of Moses, if you've read it, it's kind of vague, isn't it? Like, there's parts that aren't very clear. For example, Exodus 20 says, to keep the Sabbath and make it holy, don't do any work. What does that mean? What's work? And then, and then Jeremiah, a little bit later in Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah adds on, and don't carry any burdens, on the Sabbath, because that's breaking the Sabbath. And so they would try to take Exodus 20 and Jeremiah 17, and they wanted to make sure exactly what you could and couldn't do. Like, what's a burden? How big is that? And so they started adding all these traditions to, to the law to, so that they could live it out. And let me just give you an example of where it had gotten to by Jesus' day. So you could only get enough milk for one swallow. If two swallows, and that's a burden, you're carrying too much milk. That you could only carry a spoon weighing no more than one fig. Two figs, and it's a burden. That you could carry, that if you left your house, you could carry nothing but the clothing on your back. So to carry a cane, a purse, a staff, anything like else, that was a burden you were carrying, and you were violating the Sabbath. 
that you couldn't make a fire or burn anything on the Sabbath. So if you happen to have a fire and you threw a toothpick on it, you were breaking the Sabbath. If you lit a candle on the Sabbath, you were breaking the Sabbath. And, and the, the Pharisees were debating this, not to get into the minutiae of the law, but because out of a heart of, I've got to obey God. And so they, they had endless conversations about, can a woman wear a brooch? Is that a burden? Could she pick up her crying baby? Is that a burden? You know, could a man with a wooden leg leave his house with the wooden leg? Or was he carrying a burden? So, so, you know, Nicodemus had this down. Like, he was dedicated to living this out, to understanding all of these requirements and to absolutely living it out. And, and he, was, he was really good at it. Like, he was the top of the game. That's why he was part of the 70. And I think maybe what he was doing is he might have been looking at Jesus and saying, you know, Something's in this guy. Maybe he could give me some tips, like a spiritual golf co- coach, right? You know, maybe he could give me a tips because I want to get better. I, I don't know what his heart was. But the Pharisees believed that, that salvation was all about moral reform and sin management, right? Getting better, doing less sin. And, and so when Nick comes to Jesus... I don't think the problem was that he was trying to keep rules. I don't. Jesus never lambasted the Pharisees for keeping rules. I think it was their mindset that the problem with the Pharisees is they had the wrong self-concept. Like, like they just didn't grasp, as so many of us don't grasp today, that they were wicked inside. They were sinful. Their hearts were evil. They were blameworthy. They were full of shame. And, and they, they were just blind to their own guilt and, and really their own sin. So, so I, think, I think what it is is they were just self-deceived. You know, they, somehow they thought that in their works they were friends of God and they ended up being enemies of God because they didn't understand their hearts. And so I think that's what Jesus is is. is when you see him going into strong confrontations with the Pharisees, I think that's what he's getting at their hearts. That they were just self-deceived. See, they thought they could outfit themselves for heaven. Jesus says you can't. No matter what you do, you cannot become a friend of God by trying to do great works. Doesn't work. So now, as I was thinking about this, and Nicodemus and, and Pharisees, and I'm reading their, like, you can get sucked into all of their rules. They're fascinating. And I'm reading this on, on the internet, of course, and there, there are rules today for this, if you want to read it, about whether you can drive a car and all that. As I'm reading this, I'm sitting there thinking, God, I'm so glad I'm not like that. Yeah, maybe we are. You know, because if the issue is the heart and self-deceptions, I, I just want to ask you, do you ever have some of these? And I'm just going to start some sentences. Let me, let me ask you if you ever feel this way or think this way. Do you ever start a sentence in your mind or your heart that says, if I could just, if I, if, if I was more like, if I did more of this, if I did less of this, 
if I could just change this, if only I, and then the then to that statement is, then I would feel better about myself, or God would like me more. Or if you're going through a time of suffering, then maybe, maybe I wouldn't go through this time of hard, hardship. You know, or, or God would bless me, or God would accept me. See, if you have any of those thoughts or feelings, you're a Pharisee. So am I. Because Pharisees, it's not the rules, it's the heart, right? It's trying to earn God's love and acceptance, and it can't be earned. It's impossible. You see, what they were trying to do is outfit themselves. And the, if you have this idea that somehow you can outfit yourself for your relationship with God, you're in the same boat that they were. And so what Jesus does is he completely changes the conversation. Even though it started out very courteous, Jesus just like totally throws Nicodemus's courtesy to the side. And in verses 3 to 80, he makes this radical claim. We'll look at the second part. And I'm just going to kind of walk it through verse by verse or so. So Jesus replies, truly, truly, or very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And what Jesus does is he, he dismisses all of the flattery, all the nicety, and he just goes right at the heart of Nicodemus's belief system. He goes right at the heart of it. No one, Nick, not a bad person, not a good person, not a Pharisee, not the top 1%, no one can come to God unless they're born again. And he says, and, and it's kind of cool, the Greek of born again can either be born again, like a second time, or born from above. Either one fits really well with the context. But, but in Jesus' day, again, there was this assumption among the Jews. Now, the Pharisees might have debated this a bit, but there was an assumption among the Jews that if you were a Jew, you automatically got into the kingdom. Like, when you died, you go to heaven. You're in. Unless you were, like, extremely evil or you, you consciously denied the Jewish faith. I mean, you, you had to do the worst to not get in. And so Jesus is telling this, this top 1%, the very best, that everything you're trying to do, everything you believe, there is absolutely no success that it's going to work. None. Not a bit. And, and so what Jesus is saying is, you know, you don't have the right equipment. You're not outfitted for heaven. And even though you try to outfit yourself so much, it doesn't work. It can't be done. So, so he says, in essence, you have to be born again. Now, um, what's interesting is uh, we need to be literally reborn of God by his power. And, and we use that term born again a lot, don't we? You know, born again um, has come to mean so much more than I think it should mean out of Scripture. It, it, it has become associated with um, not just being a Christian, but like the flavor of Christianity or a set of doctrines or political or social or moral standards or whatever, but, but none of that's here. You know, what Jesus is saying is the reason you have to be born again is because we are not naturally equipped for heaven. What we're equipped for is eternal damnation. That is what we are equipped for. And God has to come along and outfit us in a completely new way to experience eternal life. 
And so, um, so I, I just want to say we, we use that term a lot about um, born again, but I think what Jesus is really getting at is we have to recognize that the old life we've been living, even if it's one like Nick's, really religious, is obsolete and useless. God has to do something to and in and through us and for us in order to equip us for heaven. He has to give us a whole new identity and then empower us with a whole new life by his spirit. And so Nick is, is looking at Jesus and I think his mind is just blown at this point. Jesus just told him he's wasted his whole life. And so we're going to look at that. Uh, he says um, in verse, verse 4, how, how, how could someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Like, like surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. You know, what? What, Jesus? What? How? That's not even physically possible. What if your mom's dead? Can't happen. So, so obviously he's getting there. And then Jesus goes back on, keeps pressing him. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly, or truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Now there's a lot of views here as to what, what Jesus means by water and Spirit. Um, you know, like water is that amniotic fluid, and so he's saying you have to be physically born first and then spiritually born later. Is it the Word of God? Is it baptism? And, uh, and, and I I don't know that we can just conclusively say this is what it means, but I think there's a couple of clues, one later in the text and one just here in the Greek. When, when he says you have to be born of water and the Spirit, there's no the in the Greek. It's just born of water and Spirit. And that's important because there's, it, it tells us it's not sequential. It's not steps. It's of modifies both at the same time. So it's water and spirit have to happen at the one and the exact same time in order for you to be born again. And I think what he's doing is because Nicodemus is a teacher of the Old Testament and really knows the Old Testament, I think what he's doing is he's using the symbolism of water and spirit in the Old Testament to give us clues to what he means. So water in the Old Testament often represents this idea of spiritual cleansing. And, and this, this, this new life, right? Purification. And then spirit is always the spirit, which is, it's fine they put the the in there. We just need to understand it's of both. The spirit in the Old Testament always represents new life, God's life. And so, so I think what he's doing is he's pulling together the cleansing and renewal of the new life that, that God wants to give and it, he's bringing to life, and I think Nicodemus would have gotten it, some promises from the Old Testament, like out of Isaiah 32, that he would pour his spirit out on his people like water. Or, or Ezekiel 36, that he would just give people a new heart. All of that is encompassed in the symbolism of water and the spirit in the Old Testament. So I think what Jesus is saying here is unless your experience spiritual cleansing and renewal from God, literally get a new heart, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. So maybe a way to picture this, I was trying to think of an analogy, and, and, and somebody that I, I read had a, had a great illustration I want to tease out for you. 
So, so picture you own a cherry orchard. Okay, you have your cherry orchard and it's, it's going along fine and you decide that it being the brilliant business person you are that the market is in applesauce. And so you need to, to go from a cherry orchard to an apple orchard. Tracking? Great. So, so you've got cherry trees, but you need applesauce. So what do you do? Well, it's obvious, right? You prune your cherry trees, you put fertilizer around them, you dig the ground, you water them really well, you take extra good care of those cherry trees. What are you going to get? A lot more cherries, right? So how do you go from a cherry orchard to an apple orchard? You have to uproot the cherry trees, and you have to plant apple trees. That's what Jesus is getting at here. The old orchard of our lives doesn't work. We're not outfitted for heaven. And it's not just a matter of pruning, but you know what happens? When, when we start to experience this sense of distance from God and things aren't going in our life, what do we do? We go into pruning mode, right? I need to go to church more. I need to quit swearing. I need to stop doing this and start doing this. I need to have more quiet times. You know what we're doing? We're pruning cherry trees. And what God wants to do, what Jesus is saying is, it's not a matter of pruning. It's not spiritual reformation. It's transformation that's needed. You need to become an absolutely new thing. And that's what born again is about. It, you know, born again has these wonderful elements of adoption, right? And a new identity of, of the old life that you lived before. You're now adopted by someone else and you have a whole new life. But it's more than that. It's regeneration. We talk about that term of a new life in Christ, a life empowered by the Holy Spirit that is now equipped for heaven now and in the future to live there. So, so I think what Jesus is getting at is, is this is something that God does to us. He alone can outfit us. We can't outfit ourselves. So let's keep pressing through verses 6 to 8. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Now, there is no way I'm going to make you understand this, because I'm not sure I do. But, but I will say this, what I think Jesus is doing is setting up a really strong contrast here between the flesh and the Spirit. So I think what he's saying is, there is no evolution from flesh to spirit. You can't take, start with flesh and evolve into spirit. They're completely distinct. You have to have something new. The only way to deal with flesh is to die to that and be given spirit and new life. And he uses the idea of, of wind and spirit here to, to help illustrate it. And I realize it's kind of an obscure illustration but he's playing with something, and the Greek plays with it very well. Pneuma in, is the Greek word, and it can be translated either wind or spirit. And I think what Jesus is saying is that, that the wind is kind of a great picture of the Holy Spirit, and there's some similarities, right? Like, they're both sovereign. Man is not going to change the wind, um, nor is he going to change the Holy Spirit. That, that we know both of them by their effects, right? We don't see the wind, we see the wind blowing something. 
And we don't see the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit moving in someone's life and, and, and changing things. And then, you know, there, there's kind of a mystery to it all. And so, like, I really think what Jesus is doing with this illustration, whatever else, is I think he's trying to say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the reason you don't understand the new life I'm talking about is the same reason you don't understand the wind. You don't understand the wind because you're not a breeze. And you don't understand the new life I'm talking about because you haven't experienced it. And the only way you will really know what I'm talking about is to be born again. And so what, what he does is he's, he's in essence through this, this section saying to Jesus, or Jesus is saying to Nick, everything you thought you knew about your relationship with God, Nick, it's wrong. That's a pretty radical claim, isn't it? So then he talks about his authority to make such a claim. If you're going to blow up someone's belief system, you better have the authority to do it. And Jesus did. And so we're going to look at that authority in verses 9 to 13. And I'm, again, I'm just going to kind of walk through bits of it at a time. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Aren't his questions great? Huh? <laughs> what? What? You know, and, and, then, and then Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher. Now, I think this should be a question. Are you really Israel's teacher? And you don't understand these things? Hmm. And, and I think what he's doing is, um, he, he's saying to, to Nicodemus, even though you know Scripture so well. Like Nicodemus probably could quote chunks of the Old Testament, maybe all of it by memory. And he knew it. He taught it. He lived it. He was trying desperately to live out a life that reflected God's Word. But what Jesus is saying is there's an ignorance to, to you, Nick. You don't get it. Um, and it's not just that you don't understand it. It's that you don't believe it. And that's what he says in the next statement in verse 11 with very truly, or again that phrase, truly, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. But still, you people, and that's plural now, you Pharisees, you religious leaders, um, do not accept our testimony. And, and I think what he is doing here is he's rebuking Nick not because of his ignorance of the Old Testament. Like, not that he didn't get it, but that he actually refused to believe it. Because even though Nick had heard Jesus teach, he recognizes the signs, he says, you're clearly from God, he's not accepting what Jesus is saying right now about being born again. And so the rebuke here is not that he didn't know something, but that he didn't believe what he had just heard. And Jesus goes on, verse 12 and 13, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the, the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So in other words, what, what Jesus is saying is, you know this stuff about new birth, Nick? This is like spiritual kindergarten. This is learning your numbers. And if you cannot believe and embrace that, how are you going to learn spiritual calculus? Like, how am I going to really teach you things? 
And, and Jesus, in essence, I think is challenging Nicodemus. I think he challenges us today is if you don't respond to what you have, you're not going to keep getting more. God just kind of put, presses pause and says, you got to deal with what you got to deal with now. And Nick hadn't done that yet. Now we know later he did. So, so then he, he refers back to this idea of descending. You remember the way chapter 1 ended with that reference to Jacob's ladder and all, and Jesus is the one? Well, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, he's, he's referring back to chapter 1, and he's, he's, he's saying to Nicodemus, I'm like no teacher you've ever had. Like, you call yourself a teacher, you called me teacher, I'm different. Because all those other teachers, there's not a single one of them that lived on this earth, went to heaven, came back, and told you what he saw. Not a one. Here's how radical I am. I started in heaven, and I came down here to show you and tell you what God is really like, what his plans are. That when, so that when you look at me, Nick, you're getting like divine show and tell. I'm showing you exactly what the heart of the Father is like. And so Nick is, is challenged. I have the authority to make this claim. But you have to respond. And that's verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, Jesus takes us back to Numbers 21. Do you remember the story that, that Israel had rebelled against God, and God brought venomous, poisonous snakes into the camp of Israel? People started getting bit, bit, bitten, bit, they were sn- and they died. And, uh, and so, so they cry out to God, help, mercy, we're, we're sorry. And God says to Moses, I want you to create a a bronze statue of one of these serpents and put it on a a very tall pole in the center of camp. And anyone who looks at that pole, who gets bit and looks at that pole, will be miraculously healed from the venom snake. Now, he didn't take away the snake bite, but he did take away the consequence. And and they had a choice to make. Don't miss this. When, When People got bitten by a snake. Even though that snake was up on a pole, they had a choice, didn't they? I can either look at the snake and be healed, or I can go on my own way and maybe apply a compress or you know, who knows what, and I, I'm going to die. So there was always that choice. And, and I think what Jesus is saying is, is look, if, if God could save sinful people from physical death by simply glancing at a piece of bronze on a piece of wood, how much more can he save sinners who are dying spiritually when they glance at his son who's been on the cross and risen from the dead? How much more? This is getting at God's heart, but it's just that simple. And one of the things we struggle with in the gospel is it just sounds too easy. Doesn't it? Like, just believe. But it was. You had to look at the cross, accept that God actually would forgive you. And then all of this happens. New life, born again. We use that term saved 
You know, saved is just being delivered from the judgment we deserve. Each one of us. Um, and, and so what Jesus is just saying is anyone who looks at me, who trusts me, will receive eternal life. You're going to be born again. You're going to be outfitted, equipped for heaven. So it's neat, because what Jesus is describing is definitely not self-management, is it? It's not self-improvement. It's not sinning less. He's describing something absolutely different. And the only way we're going to get that is through a response of faith, like Jesus talks about. So that brings us back to the big idea. And where I want to start wrapping this up is, you must completely trust Jesus to outfit you for heaven. And you have to stop trying to outfit yourself. Completely trust Jesus to outfit you and stop trusting yourself. So how do we apply this? Well, first, I just want to ask, what are you trusting in? You know, are, are you trying to outfit yourself for heaven your, through your own efforts? Are you just trying to prune your life and, and just make that orchard better? Or are you actually willing to let him tear up the old orchard of your life and plant a new one? Are you willing to let him equip you? Have you come to that place in your life where you can honestly and confidently say, I have looked at Jesus in this same way by faith, and I am trusting him to equip me. I'm giving up equipping myself. So, so if you haven't done that, that, it's really easy, and you can do it this morning. You know, John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God, to be born again in essence, even to those who believe in his name. That there's this active essence of trusting God for, for that. And if you've never done that, I really encourage you this morning, you can do it. And honestly, the way I did it is I said, God, I want this. That was my great declaration of faith. It can be yours this morning. But what about those of us who have made that decision? who have trusted Jesus for salvation. And I just want to ask you, have you accepted eternal life from God by faith, and now you're trying desperately to earn his acceptance and approval on your own? Like, remember the Pharisees' comments I made? You know, are, are you somehow trying to earn God's acceptance now? Even though you've been saved by faith, are you trying to earn God's acceptance and love by doing more? doing less, by all the if I could just, if, it was more, if I was more like, if I did more, if I did less, if, I, if only I. There's that, if that resonates with you, what's happening is all of those feelings, all of those thoughts reflect that you're still living out of the old life and nature. You're not living out of the new life and nature. You're trying to live a supernatural life out of your own strength and power. And no wonder we feel those things. So I just want to say, you know, Corinthians describes, 2 Corinthians describes it so well. Paul says, you're a new creature. All those old things, they passed away. New things have come. And so I, I just want to ask you, are, are you really living with the thought and life that Christ's righteousness is now your righteousness? Christ's acceptance by the Father is now your acceptance by the Father. And there is nothing you can do to earn or lose His love either way. Not a single thing. 
So that there's no more if I could or if I was or if only, then there's just I am. I am. See, whether we live it out perfectly or not, the life he's given us is still ours. And that's really exciting. So he alone can transform you. He alone can outfit you. But you alone can think from a mindset that's in that way. And I want to say, absolutely, like absolutely, when we get this new life, God will reform our morals. He will give us less of a taste for sin over time. We will change. And so that's the second part of this. Not only does your mindset have to change, but are you changing? Are you living out the new life? Are you trying to live a life of obedience? Not like Nicodemus, you can earn God's love, but because you are so deeply loved that you can live no other way. I'm going to close on that, and I'll have the worship team come up, but I just want to ask you, are are you really trusting God for that salvation? Living out the new life? Are you striving to live a new life? Not because you could earn something new, but because you're trying to earn God's love. Just receive it. So this morning, they're going to come up. Come on up, guys. I'm going to pray. And, and I just want to encourage you as, as, we, as I pray and as we worship, think about that. And where am I trying to live out of? The new life I have? Or am I trying to just prune the cherry trees that are there? Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did it all. You did it all on the cross. There's nothing more that we can do. Um, You give us new life. We have new birth in Christ, and it's only by faith. And now even living it out, this is a supernatural life. We are transformed. We don't reform. Change us, but change our minds. Change our hearts. Give us the trust in you to, to not only be what what you say you are, but to do what you say you would do in our lives. Help us live differently um, because you have made us different people. In Jesus' name, amen.